1: and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey it's Max. We got a
2: bonus episode for you, a special Father's Day edition of the long form podcast. Last week I was in Washington D.C. and I stopped by Evan Thomas's house. Evan Thomas was a longtime writer for Newsweek. Before that, he was at Time Magazine. He's a National Magazine Award winner. He's the author of several award-winning books. He is also the father of Louisa Thomas. Louisa was an editor at Grantland. She also wrote about tennis and the NFL while she was there. She's the author of a new book called Louisa. It is not about her. It is about Louisa Catherine Adams, the wife of John Quincy Adams. It's fantastic. It's been getting uh rave reviews. You should check it out. But we didn't talk about the book very much, uh, and what we did talk about was their relationship and following in your dad's footsteps and uh, whether they show each other their work and how the industry has changed uh, over their respective eras. It was a really fun conversation. They were really generous with their time. They were also uh, generous with their food. I got a sandwich out of the deal. Uh, So it was fun, and we thought we would run it right now, before Father's Day, a little uh, special episode for you. I also want to quickly thank our friends at MailChimp and remind you again about their pop-up store. It's Freddy and Co. It's a really awesome idea. It's not-for-profit. They're featuring one product at a time from uh, someone in the MailChimp community. They're even going to be running a little uh, sale from Tuesday, June 28th to Monday, July 4th. You'll get free standard shipping on any order and also get this a limited edition Freddy and Co. sticker. MailChimp is always doing great projects. This is another one. You should check them out. It's a way of supporting makers, and it's a way of supporting us. But for now, here's my conversation with Louisa Thomas and her dad, Evan. Hi, Louisa. Hi. Hi, Evan. Hi. Welcome the Thomases in your own house. It's weird to welcome you to something when we're sitting in your house. (laughs) But uh, welcome to the show. This is, uh, this is a um, uh, first-time experiment for the Long Form Podcast. We have never, uh, definitely never had family members on together before. Uh, you are both very accomplished writers in your own right, and I'm interested, and I feel like we should start with young Louisa and whether your dad's work when you were a kid was like a formidable presence in your life
3: not very <laughs> to be honest um there was always a little bit of a, a friendly competition between my parents over i think that my mom kind of felt that i was more interested in my dad's work than telecommunications law which is what my mom did <laughs> but um i didn't really read a lot of my dad's writing growing up or watch him when he was on tv did um,
0: you read any of it
3: i read a few pieces I've read a couple of your books.
0: I think she's lying. <laughs> that I've was... read
3: at least one of your books.
0: <laughs> that was—I like your... never observed a child eating, reading anything I ever wrote. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, I'm trying.
3: I'm trying to think of anything I read of yours before the age of twenty.
2: It's okay. <laughs> I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure it is okay. Wait, so you. Why? Why? I mean, why? Why? Why wouldn't you? Were you not like intrigued? Was it just like that's what dad did, and it didn't really?
3: It was kind of that. Were you like Dad's reading other job. journalism? Yeah, I wasn't really. I wasn't a big magazine reader growing up. I mean, that's I read Sports Illustrated. <laughs> um, I read, you know, the New York Times in the morning. Um, it wasn't that I, I read books. Like I read. It was a huge book reader.
0: Just not your dad's books.
2: Just not my
3: dad's books. Well, I
0: don't think walk up to the Iraq war is a great reading for a 13-year-old girl.
3: (laughs) Um, You know, I think that there was no... I think it's interesting to actually listen to long-form podcasts sometimes, and a lot of writers talk about how they had a really strong sense of vocation. You know, they always knew they wanted to be a writer. They wrote short stories all the time. You know, they had some sort of passion, and there was a real sense of, like, calling And I never had that. And I think partly it was because my dad was a writer. And so it wasn't, I mean, certainly in some families that would make it special, but in my family it made it a job. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, one thing that I always appreciated and still appreciate is that writing to some degree is, if, if it's your job, then it's your job. And that can be really helpful. It means that sometimes you have a deadline and something's not perfect you know, you're not chasing perfection. <laughs> you yeah. have something do. You have a certain responsibility. You're getting paid for this. And you have to hand it in, even if it's not, you know, you can't be precious about it. But at the same time, I think actually pretty early on, I even felt some sort of sense of fraudulence because I was like, well, what does it mean that when I was 12 years old, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer? Uh-huh.
2: I always wonder about that, like, when you go into the sort of family business, whether you go into the family business because you've been around it and you sort of picked it up and learned it, or whether it's just, like, the thing that seems possible. Like, uh, other jobs seem completely impossible, but that's, like, something you've seen. Yeah, I, I mean,
3: I think there's a lot of... I mean, I think, I think for a long time, you know, like, it seemed more plausible that I was going to go into the other family business. which was I was going to go to law school.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is also... A, we, were, we were hoping for that. <laughs> I mean,
3: it was actually really funny. I mean, I think probably... Dad was hoping for it most of all, you know, as he was well, urging yeah, you, law school did on you me. Not,
2: did you not want her to be a journalist? Did you think she would be?
0: Uh I sort of wanted her to be a lawyer, you know, the pay's better and it's secure. And uh uh she's a super smart student. So I thought she'd be a great I, in fact I'm quite sure. It's not too late, Louisa. She's so smart. <laughs> that i i've been I went to law school i've been around, oh, my wife also she's a lawyer i know what smart lawyers are louisa would be a smart lawyer i had no doubt that that was going to work out but she didn't want to be a lawyer so fine <laughs> but you still wouldn't mind if she ended up going to law school no i think it's probably too late there, there were
3: there were there are a couple of moments actually though even in my 20s when i was already embarked on the writing world where dad raised the issue of so I distinctly remember I, I was a fact checker at the New Yorker and then I became the editor's assistant, David Romick's assistant. And I was talking on the phone with dad about, you know, thinking through this decision, whether or not this was a switch, a transition I want to make. And he goes, well, it seems like you're deciding between this and law school. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. <laughs>
2: Where'd you get that from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a very consistent fight for a long time between my brother and my dad. My brother's like, uh, works in TV super successful he's a very fancy title which i will not say because it'll embarrass him but up until like a year ago my dad was still every time they saw each other like bringing up business school and my brother would be like i many 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 people work for me with business like, I, I i don't need to do that um it was
3: sort of funny because my mom you know when i was graduating from college i briefly thought about you know going to like iowa summer poetry writing workshop you know. I, been accepted and everything and my mom sort of wanted me to be a poet my dad wanted me to go to law school
0: <laughs> well you would have been you're a good, good poet girl. i mean that, that was an <laughs> early thing she she loved words i could see that i knew that from the beginning i didn't know she wanted to be a writer but she sure loved words and was able to string them together in ways that were pr- pretty amazing uh it, it took a while to, you don't really know you're going to be a writer until you are one and by the time she be- really became a writer, I could see it. I mean, I-, I, got it. I wasn't talking about law school. Once she was actually writing for publications, I went, oh, I get it. This is going to work. You knew pretty early, though, right? I mean, you were writing for the Crimson... Uh, that's a tortured tale because my dad was a book editor, and he looked down on sports writers. And I was a, he would, my father would say, well... James Reston started as a sports writer. Your listeners don't even know who James Reston was. He was you know, a great columnist for the New York Times. It was God to my father. The lead columnist for the New York Times, James Reston, he was, he was Jesus Christ. And my father thought that's, you know, that's what being a journalist was, was writing columns for the New York Times. You didn't get there by being a sports writer covering the hockey team for the Harvard Crimson. So he would sort of go, oh, well, you know, James Resson started as a sports writer. And I, so I sort of felt put down by all that. Uh, and so I kind of backed into uh, backed into it th- through sports. Mm-hmm. I want to just go back to something you were just saying about, about your dad and your dad
2: pushing you like, I can understand why you want your kid to go to law school because it's safe and secure. But when Louisa was making the choice to become a journalist, or maybe it wasn't even a choice, it just kind of happened, like an industry that you had been working in for a long time was changing very rapidly. Sure. Pretty
0: clearly for the worse. Well, the money was going away. I, I've, learned, <laughs> I've, learned, I've learned from listening to your podcast the industry is actually getting better. <laughs> really? Yes, I mean that. <laughs> How would you
2: describe I, I, What do you
0: mean? Talent. I, I. Louisa got me to listen to your podcast uh, oh, a year or so ago by saying, I was whining about Tannehazy Coats. Uh, who I thought contributes a little bit to victimization, which is I don't don't love. And so Louise said, oh, come on, Dad. Uh, listen to 10 Assy Coates on this po- podcast called Long Form. So I did, and I was impressed by him. He was really interesting, and I, so I get it. And so I listened to another episode, and then another, and then another. And it was young people who were incredibly impressive. And I'm thinking, not only are they impressive, they're really better than what I remember from my cohort at Time and Newsweek, and when I was in my late 20s. What do I, what do I mean by that? But the more adventurous, more ambitious, taking on bigger stories, uh, kind of more worldly in a way. We were, we were in narrow slots. You know, When I was 30 years old, I'm writing milestones in Publetter uh, for you know, these very narrow features because it's very hierarchical, right? Mm-hmm. And we're sort of slowly working up the hierarchy. Now there is no hierarchy. It's been blown up. People can sort of start at the top. They can jump into some magazine I never heard of before and write, you know, the history of the Peloponnesian Wars before they're 30 years old. And so it's very ambitious. And and people are actually doing it because they love journalism and they love what they do and they love to write. And it's infectious and it shows. And so I think we're in a great age of letters right now. I really do, both in books and magazines. The, the product is better than it was in the so-called golden age. Now, there's less money, and one reason why I wanted my daughter to be a lawyer is because there's less money. So that, as a parent, that makes me insecure. But the product, I think, is better. Did you ever give her a hard time the way your dad gave you a hard time? I hope not. God, I hope I was a better father than my father
2: was to me. <laughs> I think he was. Let's just talk a little bit more about, about that in sort of like early Newsweek days. I mean, as you've watched sort of Louisa come up and... End up at Grantland and writing these books, which are sort of similar in uh, scope to stuff that you write, even though you haven't read the books, Lisa. <laughs> they're, they're sort of thematically similar. Uh, I've been told. <laughs> I mean, one thing that's interesting about what you're saying about the young people you've heard on the show and just generally where the journalism stuff is at is it does feel to me like. um the sort of business model has kind of fallen away and this idea that like you could show up in the, you know, mailroom or as an intern or some very low rung at time or Newsweek and know that if you did decently, there was a career for you there. There was Mm -hmm. a long term path that I think almost doesn't exist anymore. Uh, there's very few places, uh, that you can, solidly expect are going to be around for a long and
0: time. I was sad about that, but as I listen to your show, I'm not so sad about it because I think, I mean, it's, it's scary and insecure. It's a little bit like medicine. Now that doctors don't make so much, you actually have to want to be a doctor to be a doctor. You know, you got to do it to be a doctor, not just to make money. Journalism, you got to do it because you like to write mm-hmm. and you like to report and you're excited about it, not because there's financial security or even much prestige. I guess there's some prestige but it's just, it's a different game. Uh, you know, I went into news magazines, and that was great, but that was sort of where you went. If you were some smart kid who graduated from an Ivy League college, you probably wanted to work for Time in Newsweek or the New York Times or one of those places, and that was great, but it was confining. When you were young, you were doing scut work. Uh, now, maybe it was polished scut work edited by great editors, but it was kind of Dumb, and that's that's not the right word. It was limited, mm-hmm. uh, and you gradually s- worked yourself up to writing more ambitious stuff. But it took a while. Was it safe? Like, it felt scary at the time because every organization makes whatever they're doing scary. Mm-hmm. So there was the internal pressures were great. And we were all competitive and trying to stab each other in the back and worried about what our bosses thought. So it felt scary, but it was safe in the sense that writing a 70-line story about what Congress did last week is pretty unambitious. Mm -hmm. I did that for a long time before I wrote anything that my daughter would even want to read. (laughs) Maybe she would, maybe she wouldn't. Did you—were you you getting paid all right? Yes. I mean, the pay was pretty good, Uh, journalism pay. I spent a lot of time in my life chasing the starting salary at Cravath. I remember that. (laughs) You know, my salary was always a few bucks behind whatever the starting lawyers were getting in Wall Street. But that was a pretty decent salary. And there were benefits six weeks of vacation. Can you imagine that? Six weeks of vacation at Time. Because Time was overstaffed. I think there were 500 editorial employees. Good Lord. Crazy. And it was so redundant. And it really was overstaffed. And that was stultifying. To be so overstaffed, that was stultifying.
3: It's funny. When I was at Grantland, you know, it was a, sometimes felt like a pretty. Shoestring operation. We got a lot of heat from Deadspin from having a huge staff, but it really felt like a couple people were kind of doing this. And we were producing like forty thousand words a day, or something. And Dad looked at the mass head and just laughed. You
0: know, they produced every day what we produced in a week with a staff that was about one twentieth the size. <laughs> I feel like part
2: of the thing that you guys got heat for at Grandland was not necessarily that the staff was so huge, but that the staff was very well paid.
3: That's true, like, I mean,
2: people didn't have sympathy for the like underdog. Pay. I have to say
3: though, you know, I mean, this is it shows the changing economies. My mom did not think I was very well paid, <laughs> um you know, I think that even that level had fallen, you know, from well, the
0: It was well below what a Kravath lawyer makes.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was not even the idea of chasing a starting salary at Kravath is like not even in the in the conversation. The, but the Kravath um, line. Yeah.
2: Like the like the Mendoza line. <laughs> yeah. But except you never get over it.
3: Um but but yeah we were I mean it wasn't just the pay I think that we got heat for. I mean I got I I got to go to Wimbledon. You know, I mean there was a there was a kind of um we got to chase the stories we wanted and we were had a big travel budget i think that was uh um something that i i already remember fondly <laughs> um it was nice that was a that was a positive thing. i thought that was a force for good i I never could really understand why we got heat for that i was like aren't you glad that, you know this is like a counterbalancing you know
2: i think that's pretty human nature it, it's, for not like sure. the, it's not like the people who are giving you heat were also getting paid well
0: <laughs> It's a pretty direct line there, I think. Um, do you guys talk about your work? together? Yeah, I love it. I yeah. love talking shop with my daughter. You know mechanics. you know where does the lead go? What's the the nut graph? I don't know if that's the lingo she would use, but I, I use old news magazine lingo, of course. And but we definitely talk about structure and word choice and interviewing and being anxious about an interview and how do you deal with it when your person doesn't want to talk to you? And we talk shop all the time.
3: Yeah, I mean that has been the biggest. I mean, I think growing up, my dad being a writer doesn't had, didn't really play a lot into my life, but now it's it's great. I have this resource, you know, and it, I don't really use it differently than I think when he was at Newsweek. A lot of young reporters use my dad this way: call him up, you know, talk through a story, or you know, how do you launder information? <laughs> as I would put it like, you know, how do you think things like that? I never. I actually kind of wish I'd gone to journalism school sometimes because it took me a long time to figure out how to send an email to a source, you know, to ask, to talk to them. That's actually kind of a hard thing to do. And no one teaches you how to do, I still don't know how to do it. Yeah, and just, I have like a, while te- you were saying I that, I was
2: like, I, I actually don't know how to do that. I
3: don't know how to do it either. Um, and, and they cause sure me I know like, how to do it. I don't know why we picked that example. <laughs> Or, but, but, or, you know, what, what happens when you're having a conversation and it's sort of moving in and out of being kind of on background, you know, or off the record? You know, how do you deal with information that you get and you're not totally sure that the source meant for this to be fair game? Mm-hmm. You know, like what, you know, interesting questions about ethics, um, but also just practical questions like...
0: Well, you were doing a story recently, and somebody's and you called up and said, "What do I make of this?" And I said, "The person's bullying you. That's what's happening here." Yeah. And because I heard I'd been bullied, so I was able to. Oh, yeah, I get it. How does that? How does that manifest itself? Like source bullying?
3: Oh, just kind of giving you a hard time about the questions you're being. You're asking reasonable questions, and they're suddenly like turning on you and talking about how much they've helped you, and you're betraying them somehow and I'm like what's going on you know <laughs> I'm on you know you want to and you even want to say like I'm on your side you're not supposed to be on anyone's side you know but like <laughs> I'm sort of susceptible to that too so you know and so in that case yeah to call dad and be like I, I, I don't know what just happened and for him to say this is what's happening and also like you know what like just call them back and be honest yeah which is what I did and I think hopefully it for certainly from my side of things, like things are above board, you know, like that it could only help and hopefully it actually kind of helped diffuse yeah. things. So, you know, I think that that was an example, which I felt felt really lucky to have someone to call and be like,
2: <laughs> was there anything tricky about like following in the family profession? Like, did you pull strings or just decide
0: not to pull strings? Not that like Luisa needed strings pulled, but you know, uh, I helped get her a summer job at the Washington Post in the sports section when yeah. she was 16 years old as a clerk. You know, I called the sports editor. It was pretty direct. I called this Jared Solomon and said, Would you please hire my daughter, the <laughs> high school junior? Although maybe you'd heard about this job in advance. No, I can't no, no, remember. You br- right? No,
3: you brought me in to meet him because I read ah. this Washington Post po- sports section yeah. every morning religiously. Yeah. And you just brought me in to. Meet him. Uh, that
0: I totally fixed her job yeah. as a clerk at sixteen, <laughs> but after that, no,
3: no. That's not totally fair. I think that I definitely have um, gotten. I think that I, it helped being hired at the New Yorker that you know I Dorothy Wickenden knew who. Well, yes, yeah, so, yeah, of course, like of course that.
0: That. that's true. Dorothy Wickenden had been my editor at Time, so she knew my name, and you know we were. Sp- you know, friends. I, I feel friendly towards Dorothy. I always see her every three years or something, but she was a fantastic editor. And yeah, so there's a connection.
3: So yeah, no, I mean, I think that, but then, you know, I, I became David's assistant after kind of after like a softball game, <laughs> you know, I I, um.
2: Wait, and so in like the hierarchy of the New Yorker, David's assistant, is a better gig than no,
3: fact-checking? No. Well, I, I mean, I think in terms of, like, pay and stuff, it's below, but it sets you up for a different kind of path, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, I feel incredibly lucky to have had that fact-checking experience. I mean, that was, like, a crash – the only kind of crash course I've gotten at reporting. That's something that my dad did not – now I refer to him for advice, but, like, the actual practical experience reporting I, – I didn't write for The Crimson. Like, I didn't have – A lot of reporting experience and when you're a fact checker you have to re-report a story at the new yorker so talking to sources and and figuring out how to construct a story and i mean it's a really um good lesson and so i was really really that was totally valuable and grateful and then working with david i kind of learned how to i mean the on the editorial side and how to construct a story and things like that but you
0: you learn about great editing by watching great editing yeah One thing that struck me early in the game was Louise was an unbelievable editor. I mean, just way before her time could take something that I wrote or her mom wrote and fix it. Uh, It was in a 360 editing. It wasn't just because it wasn't copy editing. It was conceptual. It was structural. It was the full deal. And some of that is because, you know, you're smart and you're good at it. But it must also be that you observed... The incredible editing that happens at the New Yorker. Is that true?
3: Oh, for sure. I mean, I actually still have, I like kept copies of some of David's proofs. <laughs> you know, I like have yeah, them. I mean, yeah. and I studied them, you mm-hmm. know, um, and memos and stuff from like Henry Fender or whatever. I like really studied, you know, what those well, look like. And you learned. Um, and I'm probably, I'm, I think you actually might agree with me. I'm probably a better editor still than I am writer
0: Oh, I think you're—no, I don't know about that, but you are—this This got me. That when she was too young to be that good an editor, I've had I've had some great editors, including Dorothy Wickenden. I've had some really great editors. But to be 25 and to be able to be so confident about seeing the problems with the story and saying, no, really, you've got to do something major here, mm-hmm. not just a little polish, but there's a structural flaw deeply embedded in this, and say that when you're that young— made me go holy smokes where did that come from You're confident enough to say that to your dad too right she's i think always been pretty confident <laughs> <laughs> saying stuff to me i don't think that's been a problem yeah i
3: don't think that was the issue but yeah i mean i don't know i mean it, that was also funny though at that point because that was one thing where like at that point dad would say you know like this is really great he's like you're much you would say i was a much better editor than I was writer. <laughs> <laughs> which was true it is you know, I mean, we can argue about whether it's... So I don't scary, think but, it's true now. But, um, but I think
0: maybe it was true when you were 24.
2: Yeah, I think it was true. How old were you when she was 24?
0: I'm 30 years older, so I was f-
2: 54. You were still having, like, major structural holes in your stories when you were 54? I still... Yeah, I'm I 65. Really I have <laughs> gaping. I have highways, wide structural holes. I like to think that uh, after the amount of experience that you have, that you just, like, you just nail it every time.
0: When I write a book, and I've written nine of them... I write my introduction. I would say twenty-five times.
3: I have. I, I'm, I'm going to seven to say. I haven't read all of his books, but I've read parts of books where he's been having trouble and been able. to
0: Introductions, especially. And... In fact, as a precocious, snotty little 13-year-old, you <laughs> once stopped one of them. Remember this? Yeah, yeah. I just yeah, remember. i kind of <laughs> bitterly remembering this. <laughs> she tore up as like she was in ninth grade or something. So <laughs> I happen to look at, condescend to read the first page <laughs> of something, and so I changed the sentence. Oh no, the first sentence is all wrong.
3: It's true. <laughs> he changed it, too. And I changed it. I made it
0: better. She was right, and I made it
2: <laughs> So it wasn't really 25. It was more like 13. Actually, in that case, yes. <laughs>
3: That's amazing.
2: All right, so the, there's a thing that I want to talk to you about, which is a thing that I read on the train oh, today, this morning, on my way down, which is uh, the first big Monica Lewinsky story. It's so 1996. Uh, no, 98? Eight, 98. 98, 1998. 1998, yeah, yeah. It's quite a story.
0: Yeah. yeah. A hell of a scoop. Yeah. Well, it wasn't my scoop. It was Mike Isakoff's. I was the rewrite guy. My name is on that story with Mike, but you have to understand news magazines, which are very structured. The reporter was Mike Isakoff. He got that story, he dug it out over years. And I was wheeled in late in the game when we were about to break it to be the rewrite guy. Right. And he was content to do that because that's the way our system was. And and I, I don't want to minimize my role because I had to work like hell to get that story in shape very quickly. I think that story is about 10,000 words the first week, which I wrote in about 36 hours. Wow! And uh, I remember just crawling out of there. But it was his reporting... My job was to put it together and make it a narrative, to make it a story, and to make sure that it was just the obvious stuff clear and fun to read. And how I couldn't I couldn't be like shooting fish in a barrel? How do you not make it fun to read? But well, I, I had think, to make, at least make it clear. I
3: think what he's going to point out is that it's like dated in certain
2: ways. Yeah, you know, I'm going to point that out, but I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to get there. Okay. The the Well, I'm still
0: proud of it. But yeah. <laughs> Go I ahead. Think, I think it would
2: actually be interesting for our listeners who, who might not know how Time and Newsweek worked for years and years and no longer mm-hmm. work this way, sure. is that there were sort of teams of reporters, mm-hmm. uh, both in the main office, but also in bureaus all mm-hmm. over the world. Yeah. And then there were writers. Yeah. And the reporters would send their reporting to the writers. Right. And those those right. those uh those guys and they were almost all guys would yep. uh would put it together. That's true. And that was mostly what your role was? Yes.
0: I was a kind of glorified writer. I'd been Washington Bureau Chief and I can't remember what my title was. I think it was an assistant managing, editor, but it doesn't matter. I was a glorified rewrite guy. And I took reporting from other people and spun it up and try to make it coherent and make sense and fun to read and all that stuff. It was a kind of crazy, very expensive system. You couldn't duplicate it today. It was flawed because the tone and feel is being set by a writer in New York and Washington, not by the reporter in Vietnam or Moscow or Los Angeles. And that skewed the result. Uh, How so? Well, it, it made it really the mindset of a bunch of... People had gone to Harvard and lived on the Upper East Side. And not whoever was a younger, often a younger person out in the field is really experiencing it firsthand. Mm -hmm. So famously in Vietnam, the the Time magazine would take the reporting from the field. The reporting from the field was, we're losing the Vietnam War. By the time it came out of the New York office, it was, we're winning the Vietnam (laughs) War. That was the worst case. Uh, And they built in because of that built in various systems to guard against that, a system of comments and corrections. But really, in the end of the day, the power was in the home office and with the older, typically, you know, old white guys rewriting it. That would be me. And uh, so, so that it, had, it, it could distort and, and skew. It was often polished and really well-written and mm-hmm. tracked and was logical and even elegant sometimes, but, but kind of off, maybe 20 degrees off. I used to get stoned in law school and read news magazines for laughs, because <laughs> because they had this kind of pompous tone, you know, this Olympian tone. And, and of course, a few came years came later, I became I was the guy doing it.
2: Did you ever get stoned to just read your own writing? <laughs> I didn't go. I just couldn't bear to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's go back to Lewinsky. So. You're the writer on that story. It's a cop is the, is the reporter. You know, as you're writing it in those 36 hours, this is big, huge. Yeah. You guys had the story. You held it for a week because they were investigating. Uh, Star was investigating Lewinsky and the Paula Jones thing and all this stuff. Uh, so you guys held it for a little bit. And in the interim,
0: Matt Drudge put something up. And the Washington Post. And the Washington Post. Yeah, but Drudge did first. Then the Post on Drudge on Sunday or Saturday. Post on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. We come out the following Monday. But there' a new thing called the Internet. It just popped up, and we actually put something online. It was early days, late '90s. We I wrote something very fast online after the Post broke the story. I, I put about three or 4,000 words online. I don't think anybody read it, but we did put it up. That was enough to get we, TV's attention.
2: So you, the Post, which was also owned by the same company that Newsweek was, right. came out underneath and scooped you? Yep. Bastards.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Damn it. Isn't it all in the family? Nah, we hate each other. <laughs> uh, sure. We're competitive. Absolutely. And, and they had a very good reporter who covered uh, Special Prosecutor and... She got the story, you know, Drudge put it out there, she got the story and ran it. We raced to get something online. We did it about a day later i put I can't remember how many thousand words, but I, just to get something out there. Then I went back to the keyboard to churn out a longer, fuller, deeper story as we were doing that though we're going on t v and I remember going to. Larry King's crossfire on CNN and there was tremendous TV interest. So we were talking about the story and the one thing that we had that nobody had was tapes because Linda Tripp, Monica Lewinsky's alleged friend, had taped their conversations and we had heard those tapes. So we were able to talk about them. The Washington Post didn't have those. We had that. So we went on TV and talked about it for a couple of nights while I was writing this story. What did you think was going to happen? Like,
2: what, what would have been your prediction for Clinton when you were writing that piece?
0: Uh, I wasn't sure. I thought there was a chance he'd go. I did. But within about two weeks, I personally had decided it wasn't bad enough to drive him from office. Hmm. It's uh, it, reading the story, I would have bet that you thought he was done. I did for the first couple of weeks, yeah. I think, when I wrote that first. Yeah. I think I, My memory is we wrote three big stories in a row. I remember thinking by about week three that he was going to survive it and probably should survive it. Well, it was it's just interesting. Close.
2: I mean, it felt like a time capsule. I mean, if it, it, it was interesting to go back to this moment, especially, I mean, I don't know when this is going to run, but uh, reading that story the morning after Hillary clinched the nomination was pretty jarring because it, 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 the tone of the piece is basically he, he's quite likely done.
0: Yeah, Well, that's that stupid Olympian tone I was talking about earlier. (laughs) And I may have felt it in that moment. But what what I remember, of course, hindsight is always clear, is that after several weeks, two, three weeks, you know, he's going to survive this. And he probably should because it's just not worth a constitutional crisis. Now it dragged on for nine more months because he was impeached, right. and there was a trial in the Senate. So and there was the Star Report. So it went on and on, and we dutifully covered it all. But my memory was at the at the outset, it was super exciting, super scary. Oh my God, what are we writing here? We better be right, or we're all going to be selling insurance, you know, next week. Uh, and and that was giddy for the first couple of weeks. But then I have I remember I remember thinking, you know. Th- he's going to survive this and probably should. One of the other uh, themes
2: that comes through it is the the way that you guys wrote about Monica. The tone is also, in hindsight, feels like a time capsule and pretty wild. And I wondered whether it shaped the the narrative at all. The last line of that first piece is like something, the last paragraph is something like, uh, presidents have been felled by assassins and their own corruption... But never before has an American president been taken down by a, a girl who needed attention.
3: This is where his daughter disavows. <laughs> oh no, I'm
0: running for cover on this. I yeah. haven't heard those words for a long time. I'm like, I'm starting to sweat. The <laughs> and second. Oh my God, what did I, what did I write? <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, Monica. <laughs>
2: it was, uh, yeah, it was just, I was like, wow, wow, yeah. that is a different. Um, that is a different impression than
0: uh, I currently have. of I confess that I'm, I'm blithering here. I mean, I, I don't even remember writing that. Uh, I, I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, part
2: of the reason I, I ask is because of that like Olympian tone. It's hard for me. I mean, I was not as precocious as Louisa when I was 17. When that story came out, I was definitely not. Uh, editing anyone's introductions to their books. And so I don't remember how much that sh- those early stories shaped that narrative, but I wondered reading it again this morning whether how much that was on your mind, like you guys had the story, you had the tapes. And it's just interesting to think like whether you were thinking about that scope or not when you wrote those kinds of pieces. What scope?
3: How you shape how people not only the information that people have, but the kind
0: of tone and
3: attitude. Oh,
0: we wanted to shape the tone and attitude. That's why I'm cringing at this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's, that was our goal. Often, remember, we're not really bringing... Now, in this case, we were bringing new information. Unusual. The old joke about a news magazine is like... A news magazine with a scoop is like a whore with a baby. They don't know what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> because it was unusual that we really had fresh that reporting. All,
3: coming through again. And, and,
0: <laughs> in this case, In this case... We really had fresh, you know, stuff. Uh, But more often, we were setting tone in what you ought to believe about it. Not really presenting new information. We were taking information that was already out there and telling you, instructing you in a somewhat pedantic way, uh, what to believe. What was your relationship with the White House after that? Terrible, I'm sure. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I just saw Mike McCurry last night, actually. Uh, the world's greatest press secretary. Uh, so I remember having f- good feelings that they had a good press secretary, but I'm sure that our relations were just horrible. We were out to get you know, him. It was an existential crisis for mm-hmm. the White House. We were out to get him, and it was a nightmare. Uh, but as I say this, I don't think there really was much any contact with the White House because they certainly weren't speaking to us about right. this. Uh, our contact was all... You know, it was really Mike's reporting, the kind of underworld of Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp and the special prosecutor's office. So Those are the people we were talking to. We were trying to, uh, we were writing about Vernon Jordan, who is the president's friend, and Mm -hmm. trying to find out his role. Part of the reason I was asking about the Clintons in particular
2: is that I have wondered whether your work covering Lewinsky and covering the Clinton White House has interacted at all with the profile that you're doing Louisa of bill? Like, do you, we hope not. <laughs> yeah. no. do, like, does he, does he know?
3: Uh, uh, no. Well, I don't, I mean, I have no idea. Um, cause I, of course the campaign has been, um, actually great. Um, generally about helping me get whatever information I need, but like all, um, reporter so far. Clinton has not sat down for any interviews this year, so he has not sat down. I hope to change that by the time this runs, but um, I'm working under the expectation that I'm not going to. Um, so I haven't talked to him, you know, about, and so I have no idea. I, I mean, I know that he knows I'm doing the story and, you know, it's like pretty easily Googleable if he, if someone wants to tell him. Um, I've found that they're actually pretty professional i like i actually think that everyone i've talked to is i i can't imagine that that would matter to Mm -hmm. be honest i i I don't have a like it's pretty clear that i don't have a certain vendetta and i think that that's you know no one has suspected me of that so
2: i mean i i'm open to the idea that it's not anything.
3: I think it's not anything. I think that they, but you can see how it's
2: interesting to me, right? It's like, whatever it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Like you were writing about Bill. Now his wife is on the verge of the white house and your daughter is writing about Bill. Like it's, uh, it says something about kind of the way the world works. Yeah.
3: No, I mean, it is something that I told my editor right away. You know, I said I said to my editor, you know, just I'm fascinated by this topic, this person. But, like, you should know that, you know, there's a small chance that the campaign would just not cooperate at all. Because if they decide that, you know, I might have a certain kind of viewpoint because I'm, you know, daughter of Evan Thomas, um, that, you know... I thought I'm just putting that out there, but you know, I didn't really expect any problems and I have not run into any problems from that.
2: Can I talk to you guys about the books you write for a second?
3: Uh, By all means. Yeah.
2: It seems to me like that is another point of, uh, uh, point of connection between the work that you guys do. The, they are many of them concerned with the kind of interior lives of historical figures.
0: That, does that sound like yes, an accurate description? Definitely. Absolutely. It's what we care about the most by far.
2: Why? I mean, like, what, why, why is that where your, your family has settled in its book writing? Well, that's
0: a good question. That is a uh, good question. Uh, I mean, I think it's where the action is. It's where the most, to me, it's the most interesting question. What are they, what get inside their heads? What are they really thinking? It's extraordinarily challenging, of course, because you can't really know. And uh, writing about Nixon, at least their tapes. Uh, with Louisa, she's got to go back centuries to write about Louisa Catherine Adams. But Louisa Catherine Adams wrote three memoirs, endless letters. So you know it was it was doable.
3: And not only that, like she more than. Most historical figures. I mean, one of the reasons why she was such a great subject, even though she's not well known, is that she wrote so much about how she was feeling right. and thinking. And obviously, you took three volume autobiography. Right. I mean, there's a there's a you have to contextualize all this, but she was pretty transparent, you know, and and that was a gift. I mean, you can't do that with that many people. And She
0: feels modern. Yeah, she, it's like a modern voice because she's talking about her feelings in the early nineteen early, you know. 1800s most men were like her husband uptight writing for posterity about their future biographers their future (laughs) biographers and inauthentic uh, very defended Mm -hmm. she's writing in a more modern way revealing emotion revealing her inner thoughts very authentic that way very accessible
2: yeah is that a way that you guys in your family talk about yes
0: people in your lives <laughs> yes. oh yeah
3: sure i mean yeah. that i mean that is the short answer i mean this is the these are the kinds of conversations we have at the dinner table really is yeah. about Worst. my dad i mean we have we have points of disagreement my dad has a tendency to refer to quote human nature and his he puts on his olympian tone yeah. <laughs> talks about how people are um and i'm much more you know i'm I'm uh, much more... More
0: subtle, sophisticated, and nuanced. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
3: (laughs) You know, and I'm much more willing to point out, you know, various, uh, you know, culture and circumstance and all sorts of... He's very kind of like old white man sometimes, and I'm very (laughs) not.
0: The, the (laughs) The word that loses criticism of me, which I took as sort of a compliment, is reductionist. Dad, you're being reductionist well, what the hell do you think I did at Time for, for? <laughs> 33 That years. was the job. Yeah.
3: So I think, and that, I mean, that has been a good dialogue for us. Oh, yeah. you know?
0: Really great yeah. for me. I, I've been enormously, uh, uh, I mean, Louise does have, a, I'm kidding her about it, but she does have a subtle mind about human, human nature, as I so pompously <laughs> uh, put it. Uh, and that's just a wonderful, uh, joyful dialogue.
3: So yeah, I mean, and that's something that we talk about when we talk about stories and our books and things like that. and it's also something we talk about when we talk about whatever we're reading or people we know or, and ourselves you know, and ourselves. Well that was kind constantly. of that, that was
2: kind of what I was interested like it um, uh, whether I mean, Louisa, you and I have had a conversation about this previously about how there was something about her that you saw on yourself and you, you felt like you learned something about yourself.
3: Yeah. Something about Louisa. Yeah. Yeah. Captain yeah. uh, Adams, not Louisa Louisa. <laughs> yeah.
2: That is confusing. Um, And I wonder whether you guys do that for each other. Like whether you talk about your interior lives together and are helpful there or whether it's more external. Than that. Oh
3: no, definitely. We talk oh. about our, internal lives. We're neurotic together. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> neurotic apart and neurotic together.
3: Uh, I mean, I was telling, um, I was actually telling Max, uh, sort of <laughs> revealing a lot on the long form podcast, But one thing that I really appreciate about my dad is that, um, he sometimes has, <laughs> sometimes writes things about like Monica Lewinsky that I just make me Cringe says things too sometimes that make, but also is incredibly open to stepping back and you know, talking through and reflecting and like, was that a really appropriate thing to say or you know, um,
0: well, living with growing, you know, (laughs) know, living with three women who are better at this than I am has been, and I've learned, you know, my my wife Osi edits me. And brilliantly because she sees through my pomposity and questions it and, and uh, my Olympian tone and deconstructs it and, and humanizes it. And, and uh, that's enormously valuable. I mean, one thing I did learn in defensive news magazines, editing is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. You want to be edited. And I, I have a great need for and respect for great editors, including my 13-year-old daughter. <laughs> uh, I just... That's true, and Louise has always been good about being edited. In fact, a little too I good. You really you, from you kind of rewrite too much yeah, sometimes, I, to I, too I, much. I think. But that's an important. A lot of people won't don't like to be edited.
3: Yeah. And that's that is something I've definitely learned from Dad is uh, the appreciation of editing and being edited and openness also to the idea that your editor is not always right in the content of what they're saying. They might not have the right fix. Right. But if they've identified a problem, it's probably a problem. Right. You know, they might not know how to fix it, but as long as you kind of actually a- approach, not be defensive about the idea that you've done it right and then, you know, really kind of work through you might come up with something different, but they've probably identified a real problem.
0: Yeah. And you have to I'm I'm completely defensive. You know, when my work is criticized by my wife or by Louisa or anybody else. My first instinct is to deny it. But I've, from many, many years of experience, you know, have learned to calm down and, and, uh, you know, listen. Because as Louisa says, they may not have the right fix, they may not have the right criticism, but if they got a problem, there is a problem Mm -hmm. because you're writing for other people. So if other people have a problem, you have a problem. Does does OC read things first? Sure. And last and in between. (laughs) Reads all sorts, you know, there are many, many stages. It's a very iterative process. Writing a book is extremely iterative. I didn't show her magazine articles, I don't think, because those are on deadline. She was a lawyer. She was (laughs) was raising a family. She was a lawyer. She didn't have time. But now she sure does.
3: But also, I would also say that it is valuable for me sometimes. I'm a little bit too defensive about being reductionist. I'm like, well, there are all these mitigating circumstances and i don't want to sound this way and i don't want to you know not give them credit for this and i don't want to you know and sometimes you do you know if you're writing like a couple thousand words about something you really do have to have a a point and you know drive to it and that is something yeah. that you know
0: the billboard paragraph, billboard paragraph you know often the last thing you write is what what's what's this piece actually about yeah. you, you don't know until you've written the piece but you do have to kind of give the reader some directional signals. I mean, not always. There is a New Yorker historically, maybe not now, but you know, it was like a, a wandering through a beautiful garden, and you're not quite sure where you were going, but you know, you're going to get someplace. News magazine discipline was billboard paragraph. Mm-hmm. You know, arrows to Toyland, as we used <laughs> to say. You know, this is where this is going. You know, directional signals.
3: Why should I care? Why should I
0: care? Yeah. Right. The, the famous the expression was the paragraph that says, "Why am I invited to this party?" It sounds to me like the way that you guys
2: think about each other and talk to each other is on a very uh, level playing field. Um, it's not hierarchical in the way that your news magazines were.
0: Well, not as hierarchical as I wish it was
2: sometimes <laughs> or could be. Uh, you wish you could, you, should, you could go back and assert and, uh, your parental role? uh taken no from I'm you no
0: no i i mean i i i love being on an even playing field that's more fun and rich and 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 i was uh you know i, I guess as i think about it, i have not thought about this much but i should think about this cuz i was fearful of my father and i'm sure i'm trying to correct against that mm-hmm. uh, of not being the uh, omniscient uh jehovah uh figure i just don't want to be that and so i think i've tried not to be now It's complicated because, as Louise has already said, I could pronounce and sound like I was, you know, handing down tablets from on high. But I hope I have learned to stop that, or at least after I do it, to pause and say, well, you know, uh, Richard Nixon used to say, this decision is final, unless you disagree. (laughs) 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 That's probably the way I am. What have you learned from Louisa? Oh, all sorts of things. Uh, uh, to be more open and thoughtful, uh, and 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 you know, gen- there are big generational things here. I taught for seven years, so it's not just for my kids; it's also for my students. I taught at Harvard and Princeton, and and uh, that was an eye opener. I mean, the generations are different. I had narrow views about this and that, and they needed to be broadened. Just, I, I'm not I, there's no particular generalization, but just being around kids are not kids they're you know young adults uh just being around them when they come from very different worlds Mm -hmm. uh was helpful and kind of eye-opening to me and uh, humbling
3: that's Mm -hmm. one thing i've learned from my dad though i mean that to appreciate that they're the kind of capacity to be open to being becoming more open you know to learn from other people's experiences. I mean, that's like a pretty basic thing if you're going to be a writer, you know, is to want to learn from other people's experiences. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Why am I invited yeah. to this party? Um, and
0: it's hard. I, I but, don't I don't pretend to succeed at this. I mean, sometimes I do, but I often miss, I do miss the boat. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what the, I had students, I don't know, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> For 12 weeks, I never got it. But with others, I did. Has that instinct of yours, that sort of
2: uh, curiosity and openness, has that ebbed at all?
3: I think it's grown. If oh, I, can I, hope it. it's grown. Yeah. I hope
0: it's grown. I hope it's grown. Oh, I hope so. Uh, yeah, no, I was not the most open-minded young person. Uh, I've had to work at it.
2: How do you do that work?
0: You know, just the same way anybody does, by, by having children, by having a family, <laughs> by having smart women around me, uh, by teaching you know, uh, by reading all the way, all, I don't have anything remarkable to say about this, all the obvious stuff.
2: You, Louisa, were uh, a little nervous about this. Like you expressed to me many times that you were a little nervous (laughs) about this. And that, um, uh, and it's interesting to me the way that you're talking about your dad and sort of openness and sort of a willingness to put something out there and see if it's wrong. Like, I'm just trying to like draw the line between those two things. If there is a line to draw,
3: well, I, I mean, I'm uh, one of the like contradictions inherent in me is that I'm someone who I'm like incredibly open. Like I just say things, but I'm also incredibly private. <laughs> so I often regret having said things or I'm get nervous about saying things and, you know, you so. You got that
0: from me. I'm a blurter, but then I regret it. But then you regret it. Yeah.
3: So you never kind of know where things are going to go. So you're just more, mostly
2: like wariness of your own blurting.
3: Yeah. Oh, not in this case. I'm worried, worried about my own bloating at my dad's.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think you'll ever write about yourself?
3: I I don't, I didn't, I don't like writing about myself. On the other hand, I'm always writing about myself. You know, if I'm writing about like a tennis player, like I'm probably kind of secretly writing about myself in some way, you know, it's only in some ways, like it's, the only subject I have, you know, at the end of the day, and and it's kind of interesting because when I started writing about sports, I really did not know about sports at all. Like I probably knew less than the casual fan sometimes, um, but you know, I know myself, you know, and so, and I knew how to ask kind of questions, not just of people, but you know, of the experience of watching or you know whatever. But the sort of way into anything is kind of like. Carl Bialik a writer at 538 calls this what's called this the Thomas doctrine. <laughs> He's always kind of like secretly writing about yourself. Maybe that's very kind of like deceptive, and I would get in trouble for
0: well there's a cliche. That, all biography is autobiography. autobiography yeah. yeah. And I think that's true and kind of has has to be.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's also, I mean, you're sort of changed by your subject as well. So it's not like a one-way street. You're sort of like projecting onto your subject you have to be again like the flip side of this is i feel the reason i love doing this is that i want to know about other people's experiences i don't want my experience to be the limiting factor in my life you know like the whole point about interacting with other people is to be open and learn about that and
2: do you think that you um the returns on that kind of investment are exponential or reducing when you stay in the same general field. Like if you stick with sports, do you think that you'll go deeper and learn more in that way or that it'll start diminishing at some point? And I ask that in part because a lot of your books have sort of centered around the same general themes.
3: Well, I don't stick with any one thing. So I hope the answer is, is no. I mean, It helps. Like, I have an expertise problem, probably. Like, I should probably bear down a little bit harder on something. And obviously, if I write my next book about the early republic, it will probably be better for it (laughs) because I don't have to, like, give myself a Ph.D. in history, you know, again. Um,
2: Do you wish you had turned Louisa into a musical?
3: Absolutely. If anyone (laughs) wants to, by the way, like, completely, like, rights are available. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, By all means, Um, you know, I, I do think that I could probably use some more, you know, deep diving. The thing about sports that I love is that they're, you know, you're never, I mean, this is the other cliche, you're never writing about sports. I mean, I don't do like game stories, you know, feed recaps. So it's, they're inexhaustible. I mean, basically sports are like a you know a a, a high pressure situation put people in high pressure situations and put pit them against each other and then see what happens you know i mean that's like life
0: <laughs> you know? well, well, that's why i one reason i like writing about war just put people in t- under unbelievable stress and see what happens
3: and uh, so i don't think that that ever gets tired you know i don't think that ever grows old and i tend to be drawn to stories that are more kind of um humanistic less kind of i mean i wish in some ways some days i wish i were like zach low and i could just break down a play like it was nothing but at the end of the day i'm sort of more interested in in heads
2: i think of doing a uh, hour plus long interview with one of my parents as like uh being under unbelievable stress <laughs> so I, hope that, I hope this was not. Uh, I hope this is not painful for you guys. I also don't know when you'll be in the situation again. So if there's anything else that you think we should talk about, you should tell me. When when are you going to be in your childhood bedroom again? Are we in your childhood bedroom right
3: no, now? No, we're in my. So of course, so my. We're in my parents. <laughs> Even better, we're in my chair parents' bedroom when I was a child.
2: Okay, so we're in your parents' old bedroom. You're sitting here with your dad with microphones and some random person you decide to let into your house. Is there anything else that you think we should talk about?
0: That'll shut you right up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for doing this. Thank sure. you. Fine. Thanks for listening to this special Father's Day edition of the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, my co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff show is edited by Henry Moloski our intern is Courtney Harrell thanks very much to MailChimp for their continued support of this show they are why we can do pop-up things like this and they themselves are doing a pop-up thing it's a store, it's called Freddy & Co it's at freddyand.co go check it out they've got some fantastic stuff in there and they're running a little special free shipping coming up on June 28th thanks most of all to Evan and Louisa Thomas that was a real kick for me happy Father's Day to all of you We'll be back next week on Wednesday. See you then.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it.